Good morning. morning. You know, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I pray that each of you have been blessed this morning. I know that I have. Thank you so much, worship team, for for leading us uh, this morning in worship. And as we continue our journey through Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at a series of verses this morning that contain a question and a series of responses. I thank my uh, fellow elder, Paul Waymire, for reading the passages for us this morning, verses 18 through 35. I'm going to also ask that you put a finger in Luke chapter 3. We're going we're to pop back to that chapter as well as we, we go through this, this message. You know, the overall structure of these verses is very interesting. I, I think you can, you can basically build it into two headings. The first heading would be a question for the ages. The second heading would be Jesus' response to the question. And as we go through this message, let me, let me just uh, put this thought in the back of your mind. Wouldn't it be interesting for each of us to have our personal Q&A session with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Joe Capel uh, talked on the topic of Jesus going off script. Now, when I think about that question, and I think about the question that John the Baptist sent uh, to Jesus, I, I could imagine that for just a moment, John himself indeed thought that Jesus had gone off script. And again, just to remind you of of what that question was, let's look at verse 20 of John chapter 7. Verse 20 says, And when the men had come to them, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, if you're a bit like me, if anyone appears to be going off script, it's John the Baptist. On the surface, wouldn't you think that of all people, the person who would have had the least amount of doubt as to who Jesus was, it would have been John the Baptist. When I look at the the scripture record of the life of John, and and how it was intermingled with the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of all people, surely John the Baptist would have had little doubt about who Jesus was. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 3, turn there and look at verses 21 and 22, uh, hear what the record says about John the Baptist. It says, now, when all the people were baptized, and when John also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So with that crowd gathered, including John the Baptist, God the Father, has given a clear affirmation of Jesus as his beloved son. Furthermore, 
John himself gave testimony to the fact that he recognized who Jesus was. Uh, this is recorded for us, for instance, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, 16, 13 to 16. Don't turn there. Let me, let me just read that for you. Here's what Matthew records about what John himself had to say about Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Certainly, of all people, John would have recognized the truth about Jesus. But you know, sometimes, even in the best of situations, life just has a way of messing with your mind. Even the people you love most and who you think love you the most as well can be put into a situation where doubt just creeps into our minds. Such was the case with John the Baptist. And I think in order for us to kind of make sense out of John's question, I think we need to consider the circumstances leading up to the point in both John's life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So once again, let's look at Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through 20. Uh, here's what Luke writes earlier for us. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is John the Baptist. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Heroditus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all. And then he locked John in to prison. Now, most of us are familiar with the circumstances of John's life and his imprisonment. After, being, after condemning Herod for marrying his brother's wife, Herod had John thrown into prison. And then, later on, they had a drunken party. And in the midst of that party and reveling, Herod ordered that John was to be beheaded. Now, it, it's, it appears that John was thrown into prison by Herod not very long after he had baptized Jesus. It's, it's difficult to pinpoint the time exactly. Uh, this is an area that's highly debated. But, but I think the imprisonment of John the Baptist occurred sometime during the first year of Jesus' ministry. And as we all know, Jesus' ministry here on earth uh, lasted approximately three years. And in the course of those three years, Jesus would have celebrated three Jewish Passovers. Now, if you, if you take a look at the setting of Luke chapter 7, I think that time is immediately preceding the final Passover of Jesus' life. So based on that timeline, I think it's reasonable to conclude that John the Baptist had been in prison 
from anywhere between 18 months and two years. Regardless, I'm very confident that John's time in prison was not just a short stay at the Holiday Inn Express. So after an extended death stay in a cold, forbidding prison cell, could you imagine the battle that John must have faced in his mind? And of course, our buddy, Satan, would have taken every chance that he could to rub a little salt into the wounds of this dear saint. He, he would have taken every opportunity to torment John and, and tell him how much of a fool he was to put his hopes into a man who was out having a good time with the people. He, he would have reminded John of this. Where? Where, John? is this mighty kingdom that you've been sent by God to proclaim. You know, the devil is good at taking scripture out of context. He, he would, I could imagine that he would have played back verbatim to John his very own words. For instance, Matthew again in chapter 3 Records In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Satan would have whispered in John's ear, who is this Lord and where is his kingdom? John, you're a fool for following this man, Jesus. For that's all he is, just a man. Come on over to my side and I'll, I'll get you out of this prison. Well, here's the point. I just could imagine that John, was struggling just a little bit about what was going on. And so, yes, I agree, it probably is easy to read into John's question a measure of doubt. But you know, as I've been praying over this passage and asking the Holy Spirit to provide illumination and guidance, the thought has occurred to me that maybe something else could have been going on in John's mind just as well. You know what? I, I based that fact on what John didn't ask. On what John didn't ask. Well, let me see if I can put myself into John's shoes and, and show just a little bit of empathy. Now, if I had been sitting in a prison cell for two years after doing what I thought was the right thing to do because God had given me a task to carry out, and if I lived my entire life with one purpose in mind, and if I lived on a diet for years of grasshoppers and honey, and if my personal fashion statement included never cutting my hair and wearing high-end camel skin clothing, and if I found myself in prison, 
I think somebody would have to answer a few questions for me. And I probably would not have started out with, are you the one? I'm just saying. Now, don't look at me funny. I think there's probably someone out there that's probably got the same thought going through their mind. I, you know, my first question would have been, hey, man, come on. Get me out of this place. But that's not what John asked. Instead, he asked, are you the one? And maybe it's because he had some doubt. But folks, I think that's maybe just selling the brother a little bit short. 18 months to two years? That's a long time to wait, right? But that's exactly what John the Baptist did. I think going through that long period of imprisonment, John had plenty of time to reflect upon his life, to reflect upon his ministry, and to reflect upon the Word of God. I think there is no doubt that God himself had confirmed in John's mind that he had been sent to this sinful earth to accomplish a very special ministry. I think maybe that would have prompted John to ask his question, really trying to understand something. And here's what I think John was trying to understand. He was, he was trying to understand, God, is my term of service on earth complete? And if, listen up, and if the answer Jesus had given to his question was, no, I'm not the one, here's what I think John would have done. I think John would have figured out that his work on earth was not complete. And God was going to provide a way out of this prison for him so that he could get back to work. You know, it would have been one of the greatest prison escape stories of all time. Can't you see the headlines? God sends angels to break John the Baptist out of prison. Herod goes back to Rome to give a report to Caesar on the breakout of riots in Jerusalem. Now, that's, that's the way Hollywood would have written the story. But that's not what God had in mind. No, that the messengers came back to John with unquestionable proof that Jesus was the one. And at that moment, when he received that report, I believe John the Baptist was ready to go back home. For his work on earth was done. And it all came down to answering the question, Jesus are you the one? Well, we all know the end of the story. Not long after John received the report, he was beheaded. He had finished the race. He had completed his course. And now there was a crown of victory waiting for him in the presence of God. A question for the ages.
But that brings me to point two. And we're going to look now at how did Jesus respond to that question? And the way he responded, I think, is very interesting. First of all, Jesus responds with an indirect reply to John's question. Let me read verse 22 again. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sights. The lame walk. Lepers were cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have had the good news preached to them. You know, to answer that question from the faithful servant of God, Jesus chose to provide con concrete evidence about who he was. You know, while he was in prison, there, there can be no doubts that John had received many reports concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ and what he was doing. So God gave John a first-hand account of what was going on. You know, it's good to have people you can trust to provide answers when you're going through difficult times. John so trusted these two messengers, it was as if he was seeing it with his own eyes, as if he was hearing it with his own ears. You know, not, not to drift too far from the story, but, but you know, it's nice to know that with all the turmoil, wouldn't it be nice to know with all that's going on in our country, all the turmoil, that we can find somebody we trust? When times are tough, you need to be able to have confidence that you're getting the truth and hearing the truth. And as disappointed as I am in the lack of leadership that we have in our country today, I'm also equally and probably even more disappointed in the gullibility of God's no, the Apostle Paul said it well. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? For people who have the Spirit of God residing in us, we should be better at discerning who's lying to us and who's not. Like John, you know what we need to do? We need to go lock ourselves up in the prison. We need to go lock ourselves into the prison of our prayer closets with our Bibles and beg the Lord to show us the truth instead of investing all of our free time on the internet, watching cable news, or listening to our beloved, favorite talking head. I know. You guys are probably thinking, Al, who has bewitched you? So I'll, I'll go back to the text and stop this foolishness. So, so, so Jesus provides the evidence that John needed to, to demonstrate indeed who he was. And, and can't you imagine the, the, the joy in John's heart when he received Jesus' response? And as I mentioned earlier, it was not much longer before John was beheaded. You know, when, when Jesus heard about John's beheading. Scripture records that he went to a desolate place where I imagine that he prayed to the Father about the blessing of John's faithfulness. John was a faithful minister of God who is a model for all of us to remain focused, focused on the mission God has established for his church.
after responding indirectly to the two messengers from John, Jesus now turns his attention to the crowd. And let me read the last verse of this section. It's, it's roughly verses 24 through 28, the response to the crowd. And in verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in, in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know, Jesus takes uh, advantage of John's question to, to give the crowd a quick lesson on character. So let's just talk about character briefly. First, what should be the character of a person representing God? And the model God Jesus uses is John the Baptist. Uh, I spoke earlier about how John lived his life. He was a focused no-nonsense kind of man. Uh, again, Matthew does a great job of helping us to gain insight into this man's character. And, and here's a response that John gave to the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. You know, sometimes I think we have forgotten about the wrath to come. But Jesus said, John, to John proclaimed, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, I wish I had a pile of stones right here, to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A brood of vapors. John was not a seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive kind of preacher. He was going to tell you like it is. And that's why Jesus, Jesus says, what do you expect? A reed shaken by the wind? That's just another way of saying John was no pushover. Nor was he the kind of preacher who got caught up with abusing the ministry to pamper himself with the better, better things of life. You know, we ought to be careful about who we put in our pulpits to lead our churches. Are we looking for men who will tell us the truth, or do we want someone we can simply push around? Jesus is declaring that we need men of character who will not back away from proclaiming the truth of God's word in order to stay in the good graces of their congregants. John's concern was to please God, not men. And as a result, Jesus proclaims, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, how is it that the least in the kingdom is greater 
than John the Baptist. That's a very interesting little passage. Well, you, you need to keep into account that this period of history represents one of the greatest eras of transition that has ever occurred on this planet. Up until this point, no human being had been blessed with a complete understanding of how God's plan of redemption for fallen humanity was to be carried out. And that included John the Baptist. Like so many others, John expected the Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire and set up the new kingdom of God. But John's vision of God's plan was limited. And with this verse, Jesus provides a little bit of additional insight that will all come together over the next few months in unveiling God's plan. And what's, that, what's that insight? When Jesus' ministry on earth is completed, and he has commissioned his church, that's you guys, to carry out the mission of building the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying to every New Testament saint, to every one of us who would come to faith following his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, we, we are no longer in the dark concerning God's plan to restore fallen humanity. The veil covering God's plan has now been lifted we have knowledge that John the Baptist and all of the pre-church saints never had. We, we know what God is up to. And because of that greater knowledge, we have the potential to impact the kingdom of God to a greater degree than even the greatest man ever born of woman, John the Baptist. Now, with that greater potential also comes a greater responsibility and a greater opportunity. John's message was primarily a message of repentance. Our message is the full message of reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now, right here, now here in Knoxville, Tennessee, we've been given the opportunity to impact the kingdom of heaven in greater ways than even John the Baptist. Beloved, make no mistake about it. John the Baptist was a great man in the plan of God to redeem lost humanity. And we stand on the shoulders of a giant. But let me be very clear. We've been given a giant responsibility. And as Jesus taught in Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, 
They will demand the more. You may be the newest member in the body of Christ, but now that you know the rest of the story, it is your responsibility to stand strong like John the Baptist and tell the story of Christ. Let me ask you a question. As a New Testament saint, if you had been locked in prison for two years and God had given you the opportunity to ask him one question, what would you ask for? Would you have the guts to be like John the Baptist and focus your question on the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or would you have seized the opportunity to beg God to send in the corporate jet and get you out of jail? Would you have been able to keep your focus on the kingdom agenda? Or would you get caught up in the frenzy to protect your constitutional rights or things that truly only matter in this life? I'm telling you this morning, I'm just a bit concerned about what the majority of truly born-again believers, given the opportunity to ask Jesus one question, I'm concerned about what you would ask. I'm concerned because I, I don't hear many believers today talking a whole lot about the agenda of the king. Instead, our focus seems to be primarily on temporal things. What question would you ask from whatever prison you're in right now? Could I make a suggestion? Could you ask the master this question? Jesus, have I lived up to my potential of being greater than John the Baptist. Jesus, have I lived up to my potential of being greater than John the Baptist? If that's not on your mind, then I think you're missing the point of why Jesus, why God, is letting you continue to live on this planet. True greatness is not about some short-sighted emphasis on, and you fill in the blank, but it's all about maintaining a focus on what is important to God. Now, just before I get to that last response Jesus gave, you know, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit moved Luke to insert a parenthetical thought towards the end of this passage of scriptures. It's verses 29 and 30. Here's that parenthetical thought that Luke just sneaks in the narrative for us. Here's what he says. He says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
So as I pointed out before, John's baptism had to do with the issue of repentance. Unlike the many who heard John's message and indeed were moved to repent, the Pharisees were having nothing of it. They rejected John's message of repentance. You know, the Pharisees were guilty of many things, but I think their their darkest sin was the condition of their heart. They had a very, very dark and hardened heart. It it darkened the way that they thought about things, especially how they viewed other people. And, And that darkness was manifested in many ways. For instance, they were experts and practicing the sins of pride and preference. It led them to separating themselves from those whom they considered not worthy of being counted as members of this exclusive group, of their exclusive group. The sins of pride and preference are the foundation that leads to racism and and the practice of many evil social differences. Uh, These sins don't really seek skin color as a a justification for treating others differently. Rather, they use color as an avenue to carry out the wicked purposes of a very dark, dark heart. And, And so Luke takes just a moment to interject into this narrative a commentary about the darkness of the pharisaical heart. We need to be careful about having hearts of Pharisees. And so in, in, setting, in, in interjecting this into the narrative, uh, Luke sets up the last response of Jesus so perfectly. Jesus talks and warns the crowd about playing games. Verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Now, folks, Jesus was speaking 2,000 years ago. But these words are as meaningful today as they were 2,000 years ago. So let me read that verse over again. And Jesus is not talking to them. Jesus is talking to us. Amen? To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Watch out. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. You play the flute for you, and you do not dance. We we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now here's what's going on. Jesus had decided to use an ancient game played by Jewish children to make a big point. To play this game, the children were divided into two groups. They would decide which of the two groups would do the calling, leaving the other group 
to respond appropriately. At least that's the way the game was intended to be played. But we know how little children are, don't we? They switch the rules of the game to fit their fancy. Jesus, therefore, uses this childish behavior to teach a lesson about the fickleness of grown-ups. It's one thing for children to play a silly game and change the rules to suit their fancy, but for adults to engage in this same type of foolish behavior reveals the depravity of their hearts. So what was the changing of the rules that Jesus was so concerned about? It had to do with the message from God. Both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ were proclaiming the will of God. It was the same message, but given in two different but complementary ways. John was, was focused on the hard teaching of repentance. Jesus also told men to repent. But in addition to the message of repentance, he added the good news about the grace of God which brings about salvation. It is recorded, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Both messengers and their messages were rejected by the nation of Israel. And because of this, Jesus likened the leaders of Israel to little children who didn't know how to give a proper response when God had presented them the opportunity to do so. Instead, the Pharisees, acting like little children, refused to accept John's solemn message of repentance. And likewise, they rejected Jesus' glorious message of salvation. So what did they do? They accused John of being demon-possessed. And then they turned right around and accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunk. Either way, because of the darkness of their hearts, they rejected both messages. It was a, a no-win situation because they simply had their minds made up. For them, the message from God was dead on arrival. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble now. Because you know what the message and the response of the Pharisees reminds me of? It reminds me of how we deal with tough issues today. We divide into camps, and the primary objective is to reject whatever comes from the other side, even if it agrees with biblical truth. It doesn't matter whose idea it is. If it does not originate from my group, then it's got to be evil. For instance, let's say we divide into two major groups. Group A, group B. And let's say that group A comes up with the idea 
that everyone has to be in bed by 6.37 p.m. And they have all the data you know, from the best experts in the world justifying theirs is the best solution. After hearing Group A's plan, Group B automatically declares it just ain't so. They claim that Group A is misrepresenting the data and you just can't trust anything they say. After all, the true experts in the world have the data to support that going to bed at 6.38 p.m. is the best solution. And so the war is on. Now, now here's the really funny thing about this story. Let's just reverse the order. If Group B had started off with saying that 6.37 p.m. was the best time to go to bed, now remember earlier that was Group A's position, but if B had started off with that premise, their plan would have been shot down by Group A because Group A would claim that 6.38 is the best time. Well, I think you, you get the idea of what I'm saying, right? Amen? And I know you think it's a little bit silly, don't you? Well, we must pay attention to the fact that that's what's going on in our country right now. And guess what? It is a bit silly. But you know, it seems like we're playing like children over some very serious issues. I think we've forgotten what the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Oh, beloved. But when I became a man, when I became a man, I gave up true childish ways. Are we ready this morning in the household of faith to give up childish ways? Look, I don't expect people in the world to behave like adults. They just can't help themselves. They just can't help it. Uh, another way of saying that is, guess what sinners do? They sin. Why do we expect anything different? But when born again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ revert back to childish ways, I get just a bit concerned. And so did Jesus. And that's why he closed out this response with the following little statement. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Here's what Jesus is alluding to. And I'm almost done. I appreciate your patience. He is saying that at some point, those who have been truly born again, who are led by the Holy Spirit, will make wise choices and stop acting like children. You want to demonstrate that you're a child of God? Well, stop being tossed back and forth by the whims of men and stand up 
of the truth of God. Jesus declares that it's time to stop playing childish games.